Heavenly Father, we know that you have a plan for the universe, for the earth, for civilizations, for human beings. Lord, you've placed us on this planet. Lord, we know that there's something definitely wrong. That you've sent Jesus into this world. Lord, you've made every effort. Instead of leaving us in a world of conflict and violence, you've brought grace. Instead of leaving us to struggle with our own guilt, you've brought us forgiveness. And instead of leaving us in despair, you've brought us hope. And so, Heavenly Father, it's my prayer, it's my prayer that, Lord, you will make these words come alive. That, Lord, as you revealed the plan that you had for Israel in the past, that you would awaken within our hearts the plan that you have for our present. And just as Daniel prayed so many thousand years ago, and prayed the plan of God, Lord, we pray that you would fulfill the plan of God in the heart of each person listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times, but from a branch of her roots." One shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army into the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife, and his Assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of the en- his enemy. 
When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and he shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now, in those, day, in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in the fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. With the reproach removed he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. The book of Daniel is a book of prophecy. It's a book of apocalypse. The chapter that we just went through in chapter 10 gives us the prayer of Daniel. And you'll remember, as we examine the prayer of Daniel, there was an invisible war that was taking place. Now, think carefully. I'm going to try and make this as easy as I can. The prayer of Daniel was based on the fact that God's people would return to the land so that the temple would be rebuilt, so that the Messiah would come. The prayer of Daniel is praying the plan of God. And the moment that Daniel begins to pray, the moment that the plan is unfolded, remember, all hell broke loose. And the reason why all hell broke loose is because I'm going to make this as simple as I possibly can. There are two kinds of beings in the world. Those that promote the plan of God and those that oppose the plan of God. The moment that Daniel begins to pray the plan of God, he sets in motion a series of circumstances supernaturally where demonic forces begin to oppose the plan of God. That's pretty simple, isn't it? There are those who support the plan of God, and there are those who oppose the plan of God. In chapter 10, the war is invisible. In chapter 11, the conflict and the war becomes visible because the plan of God as the supernatural forces are working in invisible realms, they begin to affect the kingdoms in the north and the kingdoms in the south to physically and specifically thwart the plan of God. I'm going to tell you how this applies to you right from the start. So as you're going through the History Channel, you won't go, Kill me! Kill me now! 
just like Daniel praised the plan of God, God has a plan for you. He's always had a plan for you. The plan always included you having a right relationship with God in Christ. It always included you be for your forgiveness of sin. It always included you having a full and abundant life. The plan was never that you should live a hostile life apart from God, estranged from God. It was always God's plan that you should go to heaven and not hell. Now think carefully. If God wants you to go to heaven and not hell, if He wants you to experience forgiveness, not condemnation, if He wants you to experience hope and not despair, do you think it was part of God's plan for you to be involved in addiction, in pornography, in all of the things that threaten your relationship with your husband, with your wife, in your family, your business, your circumstances? It was always God's plan that the gifts and the callings be made manifest in your life and that you be used by God in order to advance the kingdom of God. That's always been God's plan. Guess what? With that plan comes opposition, huh? God wants you saved, but the devil wants you lost. God wants you forgiven, but the devil wants you condemned. And just like supernatural forces were working in dark places in history past in order to thwart the plan of God, there's circumstances in your life where the, where the plan of God seeks to be undermined. Now remember, when the plan of God was revealed to Daniel, he began to pray that the plan of God would be fulfilled. Doesn't it make perfect sense to you that once the plan of God is revealed and once the plan of God is prayed, that the plan of God is going to be resisted? And so now, the invisible war becomes a visible war. Now, the Lord reveals to Daniel a series of prophecies that will affect the land over 300 years. And so as we go from verses 1 through 20, we're going through a panorama of history as it unfolds. And the revelations are so detailed that it has caused critics and skeptics to reject the dating of the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, it is so specific, it is so right on, that people have said, this is not possible. There is no such thing as prophecy. Now, if you're a Christian and you love the Lord already... If you believe the first sentence in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the rest gets progressively easier to believe. If there is a God who has created everything, if there is a God who has intervened in human history and brought the Lord Jesus Christ, if he was truly born of a virgin, if he truly exercised miracles, if he truly opened blind eyes and deaf ears, if he truly was put to death, and if he truly was resurrected from the dead, then you already believe that there is a God who is a supernatural God. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about this in the book of Corinthians, and he says, If Jesus Christ be not risen from the dead, we are of all people most miserable. Truth? If there is no such thing as the supernatural and the miraculous, 
Me being here speaking to you right now and you listening to me is a fantastic waste of time. But if it is true, if it is true, then it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't surprise us. It certainly shouldn't annoy us that God knows the future. Dr. John Walvoord, who's the former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, who's since gone to be with the Lord, wrote, This issue is a clear-cut question as to whether God is omniscient about the future. If he is, revelation may be just as detailed as God elects it to be, and detailed prophecy is no more difficult nor incredible for God than broad predictions. It's his way of saying, God can be very general, and God can be very specific. And the moment you make the choice to believe that God is that God's word is in fact God's word, then you could accept the fact that God can reveal the details of history to mankind before the events take place. So I have no problem with God knowing in advance. The big question is, was the book of Daniel written literally hundreds of years before these events took place? And the overwhelming evidence says yes. The history of man on the planet has been a history of conflict, of fratricide and genocide. Even now, wars and conflicts rage. Now, again, if you were to just pause for a moment and you were to ask yourself, what is the most important thing happening in human history right at this very moment? Do you think it's revealed on CNN and Fox News? Do you think that that becomes the focal point and the determining factor of what is the most important thing? Now, let me just be very clear about this. There are more murders that will take place in the month of January in America's 20 largest cities than the total casualties on the West Bank and Gaza at this very moment. Now, we keep talking about these casualties, and it becomes very alarming. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that that the... the the things that are taking place in Gaza are very important and very interesting. For the same reason that Daniel chapter 11 is very interesting. As we've read through the text, the glorious land, the mention of the glorious land is the land of Israel. And so from God's perspective in these prophecies, if you have a pencil and a piece of paper, you can just do something very simple. Draw a line that goes from the north to the south and the east to the west and you form a cross in the north is Syria, and in the south is Egypt. The glorious land is located right between the north and the south, and so the prophecies are preoccupied with what is going to happen to the people of God in the land of God in order to fulfill the prophecies and the plan of God. Now, why is that important to you? Because if the prophecies of God and the plan of God in the land of God towards the people of God are true in that generation, then guess what? The prophecies of God and the plan of God in the New Testament concerning you is also true. Now, the Bible teaches that God is in control of the human timeline. And the Bible also makes it abundantly clear in the book of James 
Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and don't have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. The poisoned well lies deep in the recess of the human heart. And in the human heart is the cesspool of selfishness and pride, personal and national, worldwide strife and conflict. And for the children of Israel, reading the prophecies of Daniel, as they begin to unfold in the land, they're going to be met with this question. If God wants us here, then why is there so many problems? Why is there so much conflict? Why is there a repeated attempt to destroy us? Well, the repeated attempt to destroy you is because, remember, there is a supernatural war that is taking place. That supernatural war begins to affect the powers that be. The powers of be that be want to either undermine or thwart the plan of God. Now, in this chapter, there's at least 38 fulfilled prophecies. The rule of four Persian kings in verse 2 the war of the fourth king with Greece, the rise and fall of Alexander the Great. And there's going to be several kings in this chapter that you need to become familiar with. One is called Ahasuerus. The other one is called Alexander. The other one is called Antiochus. What you notice is that they all are A names. And so, basically, we begin with the horror of the past wars. Now, there's going to be the kingdom to the south. If you have in your in your mind a a, a picture of the Middle East, or if you have in your Bible, maps in the back. You should be able to go to the maps in the back and look at Israel, if you will, or Palestine. Look at Egypt in the south and Syria to the north, and you're going to begin to understand as these things unfold. Now, in verse 1, now we get to go to verse 1. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That is, the angel is revealing to Daniel the events that are going to take place to his people. And remember, Daniel is an old man. Kings have come. Kings have gone. The setting in time finds Daniel in the third year of the king of Persia, Cyrus, even though it's the first year of Darius the Mede. Daniel is told by the angel that Cyrus will be succeeded by four more kings. And in verse 2, it says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now remember, we've talked about the kingdoms of human beings as they've unfolded in the book of Daniel. The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks, and then the Romans. Daniel is old. The Babylonian Empire has passed. Darius, the Mede, is the king. <coughs> the three <coughs> excuse me, the three notable kings that succeed Cyrus are his son, Cambyses, who rules from five hundred and thirty to five hundred and thirty three BC. It's followed by another Persian king. His name is Pseudo Smyrdas, followed by Darius the first, Hystasis. Now, again, you don't need to know all of that stuff, but the, the point becomes there are three kings and then a fourth king who allegedly is richer than all of them, and this is Xerxes, also known in history as Ahasuerus. 
And that's A-H-A-S-U-E-R-U-S. This is the king that's mentioned in your Bible in the book of Esther. And he commanded one of the largest armies in the ancient world. And according to this verse, in verse 2, he was far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he would stir up all against the realm of Greece. And by the way, that's exactly what Ahasuerus did. Now, again, he's better known in history as Xerxes. That's X-E-R-X-E-S. This king attempted to overthrow Greece. He tries to leave the, 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 the peninsula, if you will, of Asia Minor, cross the Hellespont, attack the Greeks, and fails miserably in the campaign. The king attempts to overthrow Greece. He is completely defeated. He launches what's known as the Great Campaign from 481 to 479 B.C. with 200,000 men and a navy with hundreds of ships that were gathered from all over his empire. John Whitcomb explains, and I quote, Xerxes desperately sought to avenge the humiliating defeat suffered by his father, Darius I, at the hands of the Greeks during the Battle of Marathon in 490. BC, but his army was defeated north of Athens at Pladia just after his navy was smashed at Salamis to the west of Athens. Then John Phillips writes, quote, This king was quite willing to sell to Haman the lives of the Jews in his realm for 10,000 talents of silver. He was a king with unbridled sensuality, ambition, pride, which paved the way for the downfall of the Persian Empire. For years, this king kept Asia in turmoil as he stirred up the vast realm against Greece. Now, you'll remember what happens. He is willing to sell the Jews down the river. Why? Because there's a supernatural battle taking place. Is the most important thing taking place in the universe at that point the struggle between the two superpowers, Persia and Greece? No, it is the safety, the security, and the plan and the purpose of God for the people of God, these people, the Jews. You see, right at this very moment, if people ask you, what's important, what's the most important thing right now? Well, are you an idiot? Don't you understand we're in a recession? Don't you understand we're facing the most difficult economic times since, well, God knows when. He's way before I was born. Don't you realize that we've got a new political circumstance that we're faced with? Don't you realize that life as we understand it is unfolding right before our eyes? No. You know what? The most important thing that's taking place right now in the whole universe is the plan of God and the purpose of God that He has for the people of God. That the powers that be, as they swirl around you, have one thing in mind. To undermine the plan of God for your life. It's the plan of God that you be used by God. It's the plan of God that your gifts be manifested. It's the plan of God that husbands love their wives and and that wives love their husbands. It's the plan of God that families be joined and knitted together. It's the the plan of God to, to encourage one another and support one another and to minister to one another and to pray for one another. It's the plan of God for us to serve one another and minister to one another. And the plan of God is going to be fulfilled or it's going to be resisted. Now... 
In verse 3 it says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That verse fits perfectly the historical reference to Alexander the Great. This king, by the way, now comes 150 years later. Think about it. We've gone from the 5th century B.C. to the 4th century B.C. to the 3rd century B.C. in three verses. And so here is this king. He comes 150 years later. This is Alexander the Great, or he's also called Alexander the Third. And the career of Alexander the Great is very, very short. There have been two people who have had an incredibly short life, if you will, and an incredibly short contribution, if you will, as far as humanity is concerned. Jesus ministers for three years. Alexander the Great dies when he's 32 years old, eight months. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, arguably, Alexander becomes one of the most important figures of all of human history. And know what the scripture says, Alexander did according to his will. And one of his biographers later would write, Alexander did whatever he wanted to. His first desire, by the way, was to invade Persia in order to undo the grief brought on by Xerxes, inflicted by the Macedonian, inflicted on the Macedonian Greeks earlier on. In other words, he was driven to to undo the shame and circumstances that were brought by Persia. But he didn't just stop there. Within 12 years, he subdued Asia and India, parts of Africa and Europe. In other words, he never met an enemy that he couldn't conquer or subdue. He never met a people that he couldn't subjugate. And by the way, it took Alexander's armies three months to capture the city of Gaza. Most people just folded up and wouldn't even resist him. But Gaza resisted him for 30 days. By the way, Gaza in Hebrew means strength. It's the oldest city in Philistia, and it was the stronghold of the Philistines. Does that mean anything? Again, remember, all of the land of Israel becomes a type and a picture of what it means to have a relationship with God and Christ. And remember, just like the children of Israel come into the land and it's occupied by people who don't want to be there. Are people who don't want to leave. In other words, you're going into a land and they're saying, this is our land. And we don't want to leave. And God says, I've given it to the Jewish people and you have to leave. We don't want to leave. And so the people had to fight. Isn't that a perfect picture of your life? I want to be a Christian. I don't want you to be a Christian. I want to live your life for Christ. It's too hard. Holiness is hard. Loving and serving and ministering is, that's too difficult. I want you to live your life in, in submission and humility, in love with the Lord Jesus, loving and serving each other and loving and serving the Lord. But then every molecule in your body says, I'm a selfish pig and I want to live for myself. It was the goal of Alexander to bring Greek culture, Greek language, Greek religion, Greek science, Greek philosophy to the entire world. 
he wanted to mold and shape the way that you thought and the way that you worshipped. Why was that important? Because if you could undo the way that you think and the way that you worship, then maybe the Jewish people would stop thinking thoughts for God and stop worshipping God. Does that sound familiar to you? That's exactly the world in which you're living in. You're living in a world that wants to squeeze you into its own mold. No wonder Paul writes in the book of Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, in verse 4 it says, And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Alexander dies, 32 years old, almost 33. He rules for 12 months. Excuse me. 12 years, 8 months. He rules from the Hellespont to the Indus River. He is 32 years, eight months old, in Babylon, gets drunk, catches pneumonia. Now think about this. Do you remember the scripture in the New Testament that says, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Can you imagine that you quite literally have everything? You have everything. You own everything. You have access to everything. Now, you would think you've brought Greek culture, Greek language, Greek religion, Greek science, Greek philosophy. You're 32 years old, eight months. You would think that with that kind of power, you could at least give your kingdom to your children, huh? Guess what? That's not what it says. And when he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. In other words, can you imagine Alexander saying, I can do whatever I want, but there is a God in heaven who says, you know what? You will be able to do exactly what I'm going to allow you to do. But God's in control. By the way, the posterity of Alexander included a retarded brother, an illegitimate son, a pregnant wife, a nutcase uncle. All of them were murdered within a matter of months. Gleason Archer writes, quote, The infant son of Alexander III the Great was Alexander IV, born of the Persian princess Roxana, kept under Cassander's custody. He was removed by murder in 310 B.C. His uncle, Philip Aridaeus, was an illegitimate brother of Alexander III, mentally deranged, had already been assassinated in 317. Thus, there were no descendants to succeed Alexander himself, and the prediction not to go to his descendants found fulfillment. The four ruthless and powerful generals became known as the Diadochi. That means the successors. They engineered the partition of the Macedonian Empire. They said to Alexander, who do we give the empire to? He says, give it to the strong. And it was divided between Cassander, who who got Macedonia, the homeland, Lysimachus, who was his personal bodyguard, who took Thrace and Asia Minor, Ptolemy took Egypt and Palestine, and Seleucus I took Syria and Mesopotamia, It was Ptolemy who was one of Alexander's great generals, and Seleucus himself was a captain under Seleucus. 
Now this now is going to become important because the kingdom to the north is Syria. The kingdom to the south is Egypt. And I'm going to be talking about the Ptolemies to the south and the Antiochians and the Seleucids to the north. Now here's the problem. Imagine you have a King George, okay? And you have George the first and George the second and George the third and George the fourth. And so when I say George, you might say, which George? You know, because we've had two George W. Bushes for presidents. We've had the first Bush and we call him the second Bush. And for those of you who are a little more affectionate, you just refer to the second Bush as W. Now, when you say W, do we mean Bush 1 or do we mean Bush 2? Yeah, we mean Bush 2. So, as we're going through the Ptolemies, I'm going to say Ptolemy, and I'm going to try and tell you 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Because there are six Ptolemies that are covered. Now, again, this is where you're in the History Channel portion. You go, kill me now! But I'm going to try and make this as interesting as I can, okay? So we go to the power struggle. In verse 5 it says, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. <coughs> his dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, again, unless you know history, this verse is a nonsensical verse. The king of the south is Ptolemy. He will become strong, as well as one of his princes. Seleucus I, Nicanor, is a prince of Ptolemy. He gains power. As a matter of fact, Ptolemy sends Seleucus to Babylonia with a guy named Antigonus. Antigonus kicks Seleucus out, but he goes north, and his empire becomes greater in the north than, than Ptolemy's in the south. You know what that means? The prophecy comes true exactly. So the prophetic focus shifts between this ongoing war between the kings of the north and, and the south. And, and the verse is literally fulfilled. And, uh, and like I said, um, Antigonus is defeated. He, but, but Seleucus takes over Cappadocia, Phrygia, Syria, Mesopotamia, Euphrates Valley. Even though you may not know any of that at all, imagine Turkey and Syria and Afghanistan and Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan all the way to Iraq and Iran. He's in charge of all of that. And as a matter of fact, he reigns from the Hellespont to, to the Indus or to India and he has an empire that's second only to Alexander himself. As a matter of fact, Seleucus will go and he'll reattack India India will face him with 600,000 human beings and 9,000 elephants. And Seleucus will go, let's make a deal. Give me 500 elephants, we'll call it square, and I'll give you Afghanistan. And they go, dude, you're on. They give him 500 elephants, and Seleucus goes back, and he captures the empire. And then in verse, and it says, the king of the south will become strong, but the king of the north will become even stronger. And then in verse 6 it says, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of authority. 
And neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now, right now, people are getting, well, what, what does all this mean? The northern kingdom is fighting against the southern kingdom all the time. So they decide to make a truce. And they figure the best way to, to, to have a truce is for the daughter of the king of Egypt to marry one of the sons, if you will, of the king of Syria. That makes perfect sense. So the prophecy involves a princess. There's an arranged marriage in order to make peace. But the Syrian king's first wife poisons the new bride along with the attendants who brought her and then her own husband. So now we go from Ptolemy number one to Ptolemy number two, who is known as Philadelphus. Ptolemy number two is in Philadelphus is in Egypt. Antiochus the third Theos is in Syria. So when I say Antiochus, I mean north. When I say Ptolemy, I mean south. The king's daughter in the south is named Bernice. There's a temporary peace under Ptolemy II and, and Seleucus Nicanor. Eventually Ptolemy abdicates, gives the throne to Philadelphus, the son of his second wife, Bernice. Not long afterwards, Antiochus Soter becomes the Syrian king. War breaks out between Syria and Egypt. A half-brother, Ptolemy Philadelphus, a son of Bernice named Magus, which means the great, marries Apnea, the daughter of Antiochus. The marriage becomes the cause of the first war between the two kingdoms. Now, it's no longer History Channel. It's days of our lives. Because between these two warring families lies this little place called Israel and Judea. So, to make a long story short in our historical record, when the North comes to invade the South, and when the South comes to invade the North... Guess who they persecute and plunder in order to feed their war machine as they're picking each other apart? It's little Israel, right in the middle. As a matter of fact, Antiochus Soter dies like all dictators die. He is succeeded by Antiochus Theos II, who continues the war with Egypt. At last, in the end of years, Ptolemy offers Antiochus a bribe for peace. He gives him the daughter Bernice in marriage. But in order to sweeten the deal, he says, I'll give you a dowry. And the dowry would include all of the money that comes in in a single year from guess where? Judea, Jerusalem, Israel. And so we're talking about a fantastic amount of wealth. So here's the deal. He'd give up his daughter Bernice in marriage, a huge dowry. However, Antiochus, in order to, make the, to do the deal, Antiochus has to divorce his wife Laodice, declare her two sons, Seleucus and Antiochus, to be illegitimate. Well, guess what? Laodice's not keen with that. She's not cool with that. And because she's not cool with that, that's why she decides to poison all of these people. Now, Antiochus, who was weak and self-absorbed, agrees to the arrangement. Ptolemy gives the fortune, sends her to Syria with great pomp. Both rulers are dreaming that this thing that's predicted here is going to create lasting peace between the princess in the south 
and the prince in the north, and they will live happily ever after until Laodicea kills everybody. Now, as you can imagine, the king is not happy with that. All goes well until Ptolemy II Philadelphus when Antiochus repudiates Bernice, takes back Laodicea as his wife. Laodicea uh, distrusts her husband because he shafted her the first time. Eager to get the throne back, like I said, poisons, clears the way for Seleucus Callinicus. Then Seleucus is persuaded by his mom to kill Bernice after he has her assassinated. Then she and the child would be heir to the throne, but then they're killed. Well, you can imagine the treaty ends in treachery and death. Ptolemy II Philadelphus is the author of the treaty and he dies. Now, even though that may not mean anything to you, the reason why Ptolemy II becomes important from a historical standpoint, it's this Ptolemy who has the Old Testament translated from the Hebrew into the Greek language, including this manuscript of Daniel. In, in other words... This book was alive and well and circulating minimum when Ptolemy II Philadelphus is the emperor. Antiochus II is murdered. The poor Egyptian princess doesn't retain the strength of her arm, nor does scheming Antiochus stand. Everyone connected with the treaty dies. Just like real life when you surround people with treachery, conflict, and betrayal. Now, I know you're probably not getting this, but you go, well, I'm lost. Where are we in time and space? It's 285 B.C. to 246 B.C. Now, we're back in verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army into the fortress of the king of the north. Who is that? Syria. What is his fortress? It's his capital. Deal with them and prevail. But from a branch of her roots, there's the key. It refers to one of the children of Bernice. That is, the offspring of the people associated with Bernice's parents. In fact, this is her brother, Ptolemy Yorgetes. Now, Yorgetes means well-spoken of. It means benefactor. Who succeeds the father to the throne. He's outraged over the treatment of his sister. Seleucus II Callinicus, who's in the north, now on the throne in Syria, would have to face the music. That is, retribution or vengeance. Or, as the Italian people say, this is the time when you put the horse's head underneath the covers. So Ptolemy will raise an army to wipe out and erase the insult with blood. He captures the capital, Seleucia, by the Tigris, the fortress of the king of the north. He subjugates the country. He puts Laodicea, the girl who poisoned everybody to death, and then he treats the Syrians like dirt. He captures most of the Syrian empire. His armies take Babylon. They march to India. The prophecy said he would get wealth, and wealth he did. He, he captures 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver. Do you know how much a talent is? It's the total amount of money that a normal person could make in a lifetime. And so we're talking about massive amounts of gold, massive amounts of silver. He takes 2,500 molten idols, sacred vessels. In those days, 
pagans would make off with each other's gods to prove that their gods were more powerful than their enemies' gods. And look what it says in verse 8. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt and their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. In other words, I'm going to whip you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to take everything that you have and I'm going to outlive you. And that's exactly what happened. And then in verse 9, also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. After he signs the truce with Seleucus in the north, for ten years the peace doesn't last, then the foolhardy Seleucus who's in the north makes an attempt to invade Egypt. So here's what he does. He recreates his army. He builds a fleet of ships. He, Seleucia is, is near modern, uh, just north of Lebanon and south of Turkey. He sends the ships down towards Gaza and Egypt into the mouth of Egypt. A storm comes and wipes them out. Now, why do you suppose that's important to you? It's going to be important to you because when God has a plan and when God has a purpose, He will sometimes use supernatural methods in order to ensure that the plan and the purpose remains intact. And that's exactly what happens. And then in verse 10 it says, the wars of, of, with Antiochus the Great. In verse 10 it says, however his sons shall stir up strife, assemble a multitude of great forces. One shall certainly come, overwhelm, pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress, that means his capital, and stir up strife. Now again, as hard as this is for you to follow, Antiochus the son of Callinicus attacks Egypt with 75,000 soldiers. He's defeated. He regroups. He attacks again. And Antiochus spends almost all of his time, guess what? Plundering Palestine. But he can't defeat Egypt. Isn't it interesting? And again, the reason why I'm bringing this up to you, we live in a world where the devil and his angels are stirring up strife and struggles all the time. And who do you suppose are the people caught in the middle? It's the saints. Now remember what the New Testament says. You have three great enemies. The world that hates you. Your flesh that loves you but wants you to satisfy it. And the devil. So, it's bad enough that you have to deal with the internal struggles. It's bad enough that you have to deal with the external struggles. You have internal struggles and external struggles, and now throw in a devil. And it looks pretty stacked against you, doesn't it? But remember what we've already learned. The Father's overcome the world. The Son has overcome the devil. And you've been given a Holy Spirit who can live inside of you. The Bible says if you walk in the Spirit, you don't have to worry about the flesh. And so, his fleet is lost. His troops are routed. He's driven back to Syria in defeat. Look at verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife, assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Stir up strife means I'm going to make plenty of trouble for you. 
Antiochus, the son of Callinicus, attacks Egypt, like I said. And then in verse 11, And the king of the south, that's Egypt, shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. Verse 12, And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. Let me give you the short historical note. Seleucus Callinicus, who's in the north, dies of injuries in war. He basically is riding his horse. He falls off of his horse. He breaks his neck. He's succeeded on the throne by Seleucus III, Serenus. And on his death, three years later, by Antiochus III, Magus the Great, who's his brother. These sons are determined to restore the glory of Syria, avenge their father's defeat by Ptolemy. The fortified port city of Seleucia is only 16 miles from Antioch, and it's being held by the Egyptians. Now, this may not make any sense to you at all unless I put it in modern terms. How many of you remember the saying, remember the Alamo? Some of you do. Do you remember the circumstances surrounding the Alamo? General Santa Ana, with almost 7,000 troops, comes against some 250 Texans or thereabouts. 10,000 against 250. You remember what happens? The 10,000 troops overwhelm the Texans, even though they fight bravely and courageously, and they're wiped out. Now imagine, right now, in San Antonio, Texas, at the Alamo, is a garrison established by the Mexican government. You okay with that? No, you're laughing because what's the answer? I'm not okay with that. We don't think fondly of that event. Imagine, if you will, let me put it to you a little bit differently. Imagine during the Vietnam War, we lose the war, And Vietnam establishes an Air Force base in Orange County at Anaheim. Yeah, we're not good with that, are we? That's exactly what had happened. They were there, and it was a constant intimidation. And so, guess what? It has to go. So the Syrian army basically is musters much more power. He decides to invade Egypt in the south. He's defeated by the, by the Egyptian Philopater. Philopater takes the opportunity to annex Palestine into his kingdom. He makes peace with Antiochus, but decides, I'm going to go into the Jewish temple. I am going to go into Jerusalem, and I'm going to go into the Jewish temple, and I'm going to go into the Holy of Holies. He demands entrance And before he walks in, he's struck to the ground and he is paralyzed, speechless. In other words, just have you ever seen the movie um, Indiana Jones and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark? How the Lord just sort of supernaturally from time to time would intervene and go, I'm not going to let you know. You know, you're not going in. Philopatter thought that they had worked some kind of magic or witchcraft. Now remember, he's the king of Egypt. Back in Egypt, in Alexandria, there are thousands of Jews who were under his jurisdiction and power. You know what he does? He kills 40,000 of them 
for refusing to worship the gods of Egypt. He cast down myriads, thousands. In verse 13, For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former. And he shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and, and much equipment. Verse 14, Now in those days, times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. And here's a key. Also violent men of your people. This is a key. Because we've been watching the north and we've been watching the south, but now Daniel receives instruction. Also, violent men of your people. These are Jews. These are Jewish people who will exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they will fall. Thirteen years after the Battle of Raphia, where the Egyptian king defeats Antiochus, Antiochus reorganized. He recovers Asia Minor, Parthia, Bactria, and Hyrcania, which are independent kingdoms in the modern areas, again, that are just east of Lebanon and Syria in Iraq and Iran going towards the Russian border. Then he subdues the armies to the, to the east. He waits. He retraces the steps of Alexander and conquers. Money and wealth become flowing into the kingdom. He raises an army. He once again, as, he's, as the empire is glowing and growing and expanding, he raises an army. He gets incredible wealth. And he keeps thinking about how much he hates Egypt and how he wants to finally overcome it. He has more resources. In the meantime, Egypt, Philopater, has died. The queen has died also. Historians believe that they are poisoned. Now, Egypt is now in disarray. Totally, Epiphanes is only four years old. Everyone revolts, including the Jews. And this is the time of what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Jews throw in their lot, not with the south, but with Antiochus in the north. And that becomes a huge mistake. In other words, he says, the violent men of your people, or in the old King James Version, it says the robbers of the people. And there was an aristocracy, a priesthood, if you will. And they would, these were a group of apostate Jews who insisted on meddling in international affairs. And they misjudged Antiochus, and it's going to create a huge amount of problems. In verse 15, it says, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound, take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops will have no strength to resist and that's exactly what happens. The king comes. He overcomes the, the, the Ptolemaic leader. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. And no one shall stand against him. He shall. Now here's the key in verse 16. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. The glorious land is Judea and Jerusalem. The glorious land is the place that God has for the Jews because the plan of God is that he's going to bring forth the Messiah. And so now all of human history centers around what's happening in the north and the south and the glorious land. And in verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with strength of this whole kingdom, upright ones with him, thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Antiochus decides to invade Egypt. He gets the army and the navy. But guess what? As Antiochus makes his way past Israel, past the Gaza, to the mouth of Egypt, he's met by a Roman general. The Egyptian regent had appealed to Rome. The Romans were a fresh power on the scene. 
Hannibal had just fought with the Romans and lost, and Hannibal went to Syria in order to escape prosecution, and so he was not liked by the Roman Empire. Imagine it's like being on the FBI's most wanted list, and you're hiding in a cave somewhere in Pakistan. Sort of. Now, the Romans had fought the Macedonian War and subdued Greece. When Antiochus shows up and he wants to subdue Egypt, the Roman general literally paints a circle around him and says, by order of the Roman Senate, you're not allowed to leave that circle until you have made agreement with me that you will leave this conflict and you won't return. So Antiochus opts for diplomacy. He leaves the circle. He sets aside his desire to capture Egypt. He backs off. He proposes to the Egyptians that his young daughter, Cleopatra, marry the young Ptolemy Epiphanes. Now, this is not the Cleopatra that you're used to, the Cleopatra who has the rendezvous with Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar. This is Cleopatra I. The Cleopatra that you're thinking of is Cleopatra VII. So you can imagine there's a whole long line of generations that still have to take place. Now, the reason why this is important, he proposes to the Egyptians that his young daughter marry their young son. Both are only children. Cleopatra is described in the text as the daughter of women. This is an idiom, by the way, which means a child. Ptolemy is only seven years old at this time. But Antiochus promises the entire revenue of coal Syria, which would have extended from Damascus all the way down to the Gaza, Phoenicia, and Palestine as a dowry, but he never keeps the promise. The marriage is celebrated at Raphia. Antiochus attempts to corrupt the young girl. So again, here's this young girl and his son. Again, he's trying to create this situation where both kings and kingdoms can be united. She wants to corrupt the girl, and she actually begins to favor her Syrian husband. Antiochus invades the coastal region, and this young girl writes a letter to Rome. Then Rome sends envoys, because Antiochus has broken his word. And Antiochus has a son, and in order to keep his word, they take his son, and they hold him prisoner in Rome for 15 years. That is going to be Antiochus IV the Great, who is becomes the type and the picture of the Antichrist later on in the chapter. The Roman consul, Asilius, basically meets Antiochus at the pass of Thermopylae, defeats him, expels him from Greece, but now he's forced to pay tribute to Rome in order to ransom his son. And he begins to tax the people. He begins to beg, borrow, and squeeze every ounce of money that he can. And his first place to try and get the money is Jerusalem and the temple. But then something supernatural happens. He, too, has a supernatural encounter. A few months later, Antiochus the Great is crossing the eastern provinces again to raise money to pay for the, the, the tribute that Rome demands as they're holding his son. And he goes to a, the temple of Bel, and the inhabitants kill him. And as they say in Elamia, no body, no crime. 
they never found his body. And guess what? The scripture comes again literally to pass. Look what it says in verse 18. After this he shall turn his face to the coastlands. That's the Roman. They'll take many, but a ruler shall bring reproach against them to an end. That's the reproach of the Romans. They're, they're humiliated and the son is captured. He shall turn back on them. Verse 19. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. That's the capital. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. His body was never found. Verse 20. There shall arise in this place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Again, what is the glorious kingdom? The glorious land is the land of Israel. The glorious kingdom is the kingdom of Israel. But within a few days he will be destroyed, but not in anger and not in battle. Antiochus the Great is succeeded by his son Seleucus Philopater. Now Philopater is the Greek name for I love my dad. Philo means love, pater means dad. So his name is Seleucus, I love my dad. And he really did love his dad. And all he did was sort of raise taxes. He was tolerant. He was easygoing. He wanted peace. The tribute laid on the kingdom by Rome was still hated. He's pressed for more money. He sends his treasurer Heliodorus, who's detested by the Jews because, again, of his merciless taxation. And the treasurer is informed that there's a huge amount of money at the temple in Jerusalem and so Heliodorus has a score to settle with Onias, the high priest in Jerusalem. Heliodorus plans to plunder the temple. And so Heliodorus plans to go into the temple, but he's prevented by a supernatural apparition, which appears before him as he enters the temple. And Heliodorus faints and leaves Jerusalem. And then he poisons Philopater. And the unsung king dies. But not really in anger. And not really in battle. Now, you no longer have to put the... You can take the gun away from your head because the History Channel is now over. Why is all of this stuff important? Remember what I said at the very beginning. Invisible war, visible war. The machinations that are taking place between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are all there in order to try to thwart the plan of God and the purpose of God for the people of God and the land of God. But God is watching. And no matter how drastic no matter how wicked, no matter how selfish, no matter how perverse, no matter how problematic, God has a plan. His plan is the people of God and the land of God are going to be used by God to bring forth the Messiah. The Messiah's come, hasn't he? Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. Is Jesus going to come back? I think that the answer is yes. I think that the answer is yes. I know that the answer is yes. Because if the prophecies are so exact and so specific, 
they're going to be exact and specific in the ones that remain unfulfilled. God has a plan for you. He's gifted you. He's called you. He's equipped you. And once you begin to know the plan of God, and you begin to pray the plan of God, the invisible war becomes visible because the kings of the north and the kings of the south become very much like the kings in our own world. There is the prince of the power of the air. There is a Satan who hates you and is trying to undermine the plan of God. This is why we gather. This is why we pray. This is why we minister. This is why we begin to understand the gifts and callings that we've, we have in our life. And then we begin to express those in specific ministries. I'm trying to make this so that you will understand why this is important to you. Now, we turn the channel back to Oprah. I'm just tizzy. I hate Oprah. The, the show. We love Oprah. We're praying for her soul. So, Ptolemy, Southern King. Seleucus and Antiochus, Northern Kings. Ptolemy numero uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis. Seleucus the first, Antiochus the first, Antiochus the second, Seleucus the second, Callinicus, Seleucus the third, Seleucus the third, the great, Seleucus the fourth, Philopater, I love my dad, Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes, he comes next. So we're going to pray. We're going to hand out the elements of communion. And while we're handing out the elements of communion, I just want you to prepare your heart just for a moment. Heavenly Father, what an amazing series of prophecies and fulfillments. Just like the, the 300 prophecies that surround your first coming, your life, your ministry, your death, your resurrection. Lord, in exacting detail, Lord, you've revealed that you've always had a plan. That human beings were never meant to be left in their sin. They were never to be left in despair. They were never to be left without hope. They were never to be left in circumstances where they were on their own. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the plan that you had. The plan that you've always had to save us, to redeem us. And for the person, Lord, who's wondering... If the plan of God is truly unfolding in their life. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart. The plan of God can't be that you would be destroyed by Satan. The plan of God can't be that you will be rendered useless and worthless and lifeless and loveless. The plan of God has to include redemption, forgiveness hope. And Lord, when you called Christians together, just like there was a plan and a purpose for the people of God and the land of God, Lord, you gathered Christians together from around the world and you told us that when we gather together that we were to observe a time 
of reflection. <coughs> Lord, we remember that the Bible says that on the last night of Jesus' life before he was crucified, he took bread and he broke it and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. And again, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and drink it, all of you. This will be for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we want so much not just simply to remember what you've done but to identify with you with what you've done to identify ourselves as men and women of God men and women who believe that Jesus came and loved us and died for us and rose from the dead we want to identify ourselves as people of God Lord we want to make ourselves available so that you would, we can be used by you and Lord, for the person who's been beaten down by sin, where wickedness and corruption has literally taken hope and life and joy right out of them, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that's not the plan. That was never a part of the plan. But Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And Lord, I pray for that person who wants to experience abundant life. Who's come to the realization that the supernatural Jesus spoken of in the Bible literally did die for sin and is willing to forgive. And Lord, I pray that they would open their heart. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and that they would appropriate the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. And Lord, for that person who hasn't made that decision, Lord, I pray that they would make that decision now. Lord, I pray that as they open up their heart and Lord, as you extend the invitation to them, that they would say yes to you, that they would say yes to the Savior, that they would say yes to the plan, that they would say yes to the purpose and that the forces that have tried to keep them so long away from the Bible and so long away from the truth and so long away from hope and forgiveness, Lord, I pray that they would enter into what they've always been created for, to experience love and joy and peace and mercy in Christ. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us now would just prepare our own hearts. That, Lord, we would consider what a great Savior we have, what a great love He's demonstrated. In Jesus' name. Amen.